Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two clones. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So let's start with intros. First up, we got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Next, we've got Tarun, the Giga Brain and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. And finally, we got myself, I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. All four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. So it's been a wild week. Uh, the big news of the week, so I'm, I'm in San Francisco right now, and uh, all of SF is a buzz about this. Finally, Elon Musk was forced to buy Twitter. And I was there, I was here on um, Friday. I think Friday was the day that like he, he came into the building and started clearing house. And um, there were a bunch of reporters outside the Twitter office, which is usually like kind of a dank part of SF. Uh, people were just waiting for, for employees to come walking out with like all their stuff in a box to try to interview them. So it's, it's, been, it's been crazy to see. Everybody is kind of a combination of scared and excited. It turns out there, there's a lot of interesting crypto elements that are weaved into the story. So for one, part of the investment uh, syndicate included 500 million from Binance. CZ was interviewed about, hey, what do you think about investing in a Twitter? And he was like, oh, it's great. I love free speech. Uh, apparently, Sam Bankman-Fried was a, a shareholder in Twitter. And so Sam Bankman-Fried made some quick money. I think he, he said he owned somewhere between a 50 and 100 million in, uh, in Twitter. And so the buyout obviously did uh, well for him. Uh, Dogecoin, true for, for him probably. Dogecoin has gone nuts. Best performing asset in the last week. I think it's up well over 100%. What do you guys think about the Twitter acquisition? We're here now and everyone's worried about it. Well, let's just start with the Doge piece because I think that's the most relevant and fun and interesting for uh, the crypto audience. So uh, one of the documents that I saw that was released um, pursuant to the lawsuit was actually a conversation he was having about you know, the future of Twitter as a blockchain asset. Obviously, you know, leading up to the acquisition, there was interest from a lot of crypto people to participate. CZ participated. There was interest from SBF. There was interest from a lot of other people. Obviously, Elon Musk is well known for espousing an interest in crypto. And so one of the documents that came out was actually him being asked about how Twitter could work on a blockchain. And even though it was probably an offhand comment and it was like, you know, discardable and it might have even been a joke, he said that, the tweets could themselves be posted onto a blockchain like Dogecoin, and you might be in a situation in the future in which you're actually paying Dogecoin, you know, as a transaction to um, republish the same content um, or to retweet. So a retweet would potentially cost Dogecoin. So I actually found it one interesting that he was talking about how maybe it could exist on a blockchain, and two that you know, whether it was a deliberate, you know, wink, wink, you know, nod to the community or not, that he referenced Dogecoin as an example of how Twitter could integrate. And so, 
you know, I think that's what was one of many things that fueled a lot of excitement um, over last week from the Dogecoin community. You know, it might have been a joke. Alana is truly the master of trolling in every sense of the word. But I found that interesting that it has been a conversation about how Twitter could integrate and that, you know, he was using Doge as the example. So these were in text messages, right? That like came out in Discovery or something? So these were not intended for public consumption, to be clear. Correct. So I saw another Elon text leak that came out, also came out in Discovery, where I forget who was talking to him about like running a decentralized Twitter. And he was like very down on the idea. He was like, no, like that doesn't make any sense. Like there's not nearly enough scale to be able to process that. You have like state bloat, blah, 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 blah. And so it's like, I don't really know where his head is at. And it also reminded me like what's happening with Blue Sky? Blue Sky is spun out, but I'm assuming Twitter still owns some of it. So like, you know, what's the latest with that project? How does that relate to the Twitter acquisition? Um, I don't quite know. They did release their their uh, first version. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm friends with the person who runs it. And I haven't talked to her in a while since she actually joined. But before that, she was more free. <laughs> They're actually doing something. I mean, the, their model of the world is like they want everything to look like Git. And they want like everyone to be able to like clone their own Twitter repo and like, you know, be able to do, you know, like forks of it. Um, it's a little bit like, I do feel like it's way too developery in the sense that it's like, I could kind of, ha- it's, I find a hard time imagining a non-developer using it. It's like, why did Git take a long time? You know, Git was invented in like, the 90s, like Linus Torvalds committed it. I think the first commit message was like 1990, 1991. But it, it did take Bitbucket, GitHub, whatever, to actually make Git use, useful. But, you know, before that, people were using like Perforce, Mercurial, things like that. And so there is there is kind of this trade-off of like, if you make it a little too Git-like and like need everyone to manage their own local forks, it's like really, it's like, yeah, theoretically a wall is supposed to do that for you, but it's like really hard with a social network, at least in my mind. Well, isn't that what Mastodon is supposed to be? And, and like, there was, there's been this talk about people migrating away from Twitter to Mastodon as like protest of Elon. I assume I, this is like massively overblown. My, my my favorite thing is like you know, I would say like if I had to describe myself in the like the groups, the the not really intersecting groups in Twitter I'm in, it's like crypto Twitter, ML Twitter, some of math Twitter, some of physics Twitter, and like physics Twitter and math Twitter are just like we hate Elon, but whatever. And ML Twitter is like, oh my God, they're just going on this huge rampage. And it's kind of <laughs> ironic because I'm like, these are people who are like the head of head of ML at Amazon, like, or head of ML at OpenAI, or like researcher at uh, like professor at university. And I'm like, it is kind of ironic that the people who are working on the like most centralizing technology in the in the history of mankind are like, we want this decentralized like chat platform. Like I, I still can't get over the irony of that. Well, but here's, here's the other irony. Here's the other irony, right? Is that a lot of the storytelling about why we wanted decentralized Twitter was that Twitter was making all of these unilateral decisions, censoring people, deciding which viewpoints were okay and which ones are not. Elon is now explicitly saying, Twitter's going to stop doing that. We're going to be the platform of free speech, blah, blah, blah. If that actually happens, which I, I'm skeptical that it's going to happen and they're going to be able to retain advertisers. But let's let's say that, in fact, it's going to do what, what Elon says it's going to do. It kind of defeats a lot of the ostensible value proposition for why you care about censorship-resistant Twitter if Twitter massively tones down the censorship. On the other hand, the people who are mostly complaining are really more on the left. They're really more people who just don't like Elon Musk, think that he's an asshole, think that he's like bad for the world, don't like the idea of billionaires owning platforms. 
So their, their protest is like a very different kind of protest than the kinds of protests that have previously animated calls for a decentralized alternative to Twitter. Um, now, of course, the actual decentralized alternative to Twitter today, which is de facto Mastodon, is still like a tiny nothing that nobody really cares about. I mean, it's cool. It's, it's an awesome project. But in reality, it's like so small compared to what Twitter is. I, I don't know. It feels to me a little bit, it feels a bit too shrill right now. And obviously, we don't know what changes Elon is going to make. He's talked about freezing moderation decisions until they construct some kind of council. And that council is going to be making like very large, important moderation decisions for the platform, which is basically exactly what Facebook has, if I recall. And so essentially, Twitter is going to become more like Facebook, which I'm not sure really how radical that is. And also, for some reason, people perceive it as radical on both sides. Like I think on the, on the right, people are like, wow, that's like a radical change of open free speech. And on the left, they're like, oh, that's a radical you know, reversion to allowing hate speech and all these other horrible things to happen. To my mind, it's just basically turning Twitter into Facebook. I mean, my favorite thing right after the announcement was all of the LARPing of like, oh, look, I see no bots. <laughs> oh, look, I see more yeah. hate speech. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of like misinformation about misinformation, which was kind of one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen uh, that happened over the weekend, I feel like. Yeah, there's there, there there's a tremendous amount of virtue signaling going on right now around the Twitter acquisition, uh, or the, the, not acquisition. But the, the best thing about it is all these people like who are tweeting about how to go follow their Mastodon server, and then you go back to their Twitter the next day, and like, oh no no no, actually like, hey, you come to my Mastodon server, and it's like every day they're writing a tweet go to the Mastodon. <laughs> <It's> like, <okay. laughs> I find those tweets I find the funniest. <laughs> There was actually a really good like Hacker News comment. Someone was describing how to set up a, their Mastodon server and, and do all this. And then someone was like, yeah, you could also like write out your you know message on the Notes app and screenshot it. And it would have the same effect because no one's going to see the fucking Mastodon post. Um, and you can save, save yourself some time. That was pretty good. Yeah, as, to be clear, we're talking a lot about Mastodon. So it's probably worth explaining what it is. So Mastodon is a federated social media platform. It's kind of like, you know, you can sort of set up your own server that acts as your own like sort of mini Twitter and many different people can have their own servers and servers can reference each other. So it's like a federated version of Twitter, but it's entirely kind of self-sovereign of smaller servers. And so this is, it, it's existed for a very long time. It's been kind of niche. And now people are talking about it because they're, I think mostly because they're virtue signaling about Elon Musk buying Twitter. So we'll, we'll see what happens here. There's been some rumblings about, so, you know, beyond the Dogecoin stuff, there was also a, potential leak, it's a speculation, unclear, that um, Twitter uh, has been building a product to have a wallet integrated directly into Twitter. Were there any more details on that or was that, was that, so was that it? This is, it comes from a tweet from Jane Wong, who I've followed for a long time. She's great. She Generally, I think her strategy is she like decompiles app store binaries and sort of pokes through it to find features that are in development. And they tend to be pretty accurate. And sometimes she even gets like screenshots of stuff that's in development. So I would assume there's something in the current Twitter app store binary that alludes to a wallet or as some sort of prototype for a wallet. So, I mean, Twitter has been like the most pro crypto of the big tech companies, um, which is, which is kind of strange. Well, I mean, they have the crypto user base. There's some feedback loop there. It can't just be one way. Like during the NFT boom, I think I remember the interesting thing was like watching all of these accounts that had, you know, 150K to a million followers on Instagram coming to Twitter for the first time because they wanted to sell NFTs and they like couldn't, like no one on Instagram was buying any NFTs. And so that, I thought that was like, a, that's a pretty interesting dynamic of like, hey, the market actually is like, 
if if Twitter has any monetization vehicle that isn't just charging more for verification, uh, it probably has to use crypto. I don't really see. I mean, to be clear, Twitter. Remember, Twitter was banning crypto advertising, right? So, like, they were making money on Twitter users by showing them irrelevant ads. But if they were showing crypto ads, they, I think, Twitter would become a crypto company. They would have made so much money. Yeah, they last cycle they should have, right? Like ninety percent of NFT marketing probably was Twitter and Discord. And if we look at the two companies, did did they make any money off of that? Like, I'm sure their their stock went up a bit based on some numbers, but I, I don't think that they made any like on a direct accountable revenue basis. You know, imagine if they had an affiliate marketing thing with OpenSea, where any any link that went to OpenSea from Twitter, like OpenSea paid them like. Two basis points of the fee, five basis points. I, I mean, I they could have done a lot of things. Could be more aggressive. It's possible they are doing that for the PFPs. Yeah, they could be doing that for the PFPs. That, that's true. Yeah, I mean, think about how much money MetaMask makes on you know charging eighty-seven bits or whatever. You bake that into Twitter. Like, I don't see why not. Yeah, unfortunately, um, Elon kind of took this thing over at precisely the wrong time to get to ring very much out of the crypto industry. But I know, anyway, finance, I, finance is like, hey, let's put let's put BUSD pay in, in, in Twitter. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's yeah, really been, been pushing that. Like basically, finance pay, however, is the most impressive product of the last three months that I've, I've seen. Period in crypto, right? Like, I mean, huh, I've not used it. You, wait, walk us through what it is because I have not used it. Yeah, so so Binance has basically been actually, Tom. If you want to get up the BUSD market cap or BUSD versus USDC market cap from the last three months. I think that tells half the story. But uh, Binance has really been working on getting BUSD, their USD-like stablecoin, which is actually held in New York, bizarrely, because it's sort of issued by Paxos. And they've been working on getting that integrated in a lot of places and also, you know, actually removing USDC pairs on Binance and like trying to encourage people to use BUSD. Yeah, I think that's the bigger story, right? Is like you basically are getting force converted into BUSD if you have USDC. I don't know how much Binance Pay is driving that conversion. But Binance Pay, though, has had like $10 billion of, of actual volume that's just people sending BUSD on Binance to each other. There's, there's actually like quite a bit of like payment stuff that seems to be happening in BUSD terms in Latin America and Africa. Actually, in, in Colombia during DevCon, I, I walked by a little like, almost like local Bitcoins like place that will like take local currency and give you BUSD. And I was like, as the first time I'd seen that, I've only seen that around amongst like local Bitcoins type of things. I've never seen that for like a USD stable. Wow. And so I, I think BUSD is, I mean, yeah, you can just see the market cap growth. It's like clearly, you know, they're really pushing on trying to get it to get used. And, and it, it is 50, it's almost 50% of circle of USDC's market cap. It's pretty close. And it was like nothing before. So, so, so I think CZ has been actually saying like literally since the acquisition closed, like, Hey, like I'm going to keep trying to push like Binance pay to get integrated into Twitter. So, which is just using BUSD settlement, kind of like the way Solana pay is doing USDC settlement, like, um, similar. Yeah. You can see some of the growth here. Yeah. There's kind of loosely related. One of, one of the things I've seen some hand wringing about kind of coming back to the Twitter story is the fact that there's so much, um, foreign ownership. Of Twitter, and uh, of course, CZ is is one of those actors. He owns a significant amount. I think the um, uh, some of the Saudis own a very significant chunk of Twitter, and then of course, Elon Musk himself has significant business interests in China, and has relationships with uh, the governments of many other countries. 
what do you guys think about the 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 kind of free speech and or you know making something like a neutral a neutral ground for public opinion being potentially jeopardized by all these foreign interests having a a big stake in Twitter? I mean, I think there's a lot of interest that held Twitter before it was taken private. You know, uh, you know, as a publicly traded company, there was a lot of people that owned it. You know, I don't think it's going to change. I you know, I don't think you know it's going to increase uh, necessarily. You know, the call it the intervention into what content's allowed and not allowed on Twitter. I think in general, Elon seems like he wants to take it in the opposite direction, which is way less control over what content is allowed. And so I think in general, it's going to, you know, you can call it free speech or you can call it, you know, whatever Elon wants it to be, but I think there's going to be less moderation. I mean, it, it, the other thing to keep in mind, so Tesla is worth $670 billion. Twitter is worth something, you know, fair market value is probably somewhere in the order of 30 something billion. So it's one twentieth, less than one twentieth the value of Tesla to say nothing of SpaceX. Um, and so very much from the perspective of Elon, I have to imagine that his, I don't know exactly what his interest in, in Tesla is, but has to be much larger than his interest in Twitter. And so to some degree, Twitter might just become subordinate to his business interests in he did sell a lot of Tesla. I mean, not a lot relative to his hold holdings, but like ten percent something to, to fund this. Yeah, but he still has more, like net overall. Yeah, it must be it must be a lot more. So, like, look, if 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 China's leaning on him, and China basically says, like, look, we're gonna cut your contracts, uh, or we're gonna make life much harder for you to do some of your manufacturing here, or to access our our markets, unless you blah 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 with Twitter. I think that that does seem actually pretty seriously concerning. And that, and that might be, in some sense, the best argument that we have left for why Twitter, why a decentralized version of Twitter is potentially more compelling at a moment like this. Anyway, okay, let's let's move off from Twitter. We'll, we'll probably have a lot more to say once we actually know actually, what's going to happen. Actually, can I ask a quick question? One, one around the horn thing for each of us to answer. So do you think if Twitter moves to this $8 you have to be ver- your verification is paid for. You will have less spammy check blue check marks. Do you think it will increase, stay the same, decrease? Uh, I think decrease. I yeah, I don't. So I don't actually understand the concept here. Is it the idea like if you're already verified, you now have to pay, or is it the idea that anybody can pay to get verified? I think I think it is actually. I think you have to pay if you're already verified. But but I think they're going to change the verification process. At least that's what. Yeah. yeah, it does seem a bit too vague. It seems a bit too vague right now. What exactly is going to happen? What I saw was that people who are verified have to I pay. I think it's ever, anyone. I, I think the problem is the current verification process is literally like, do you know someone who works at Twitter? Ask them to give you a blue check mark, and then they, they'll vouch for you. Are you just saying this because you're the only one of us who's not verified? <laughs> you, sound, you sound a little salty. <laughs> you know, you know, some some of us are 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 men of the people. Okay, that's right. Right, that's right. I just. I'm never joining this blue checkmark cabal. That's like that's like that's like the uh, Knights of Columbus of of, of online mm. media. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the purpose of the verification, right, is to prevent you know fake accounts and, and, and bots. So, giving that to everyone seems kind of silly. But I think the big question is just like why this monetization method. Like, I understand maybe the desire to get away from advertising if you're going to be cutting down on moderation, but like. If you just do the math, like this doesn't really scale up to be meaningful to Twitter's bottom line. You know, Twitter made like five billion dollars last year in revenue. Like, you, you're not going to be able to make five billion dollars charging people eight dollars a month, um, assuming sort of certain opt-in rates and certain usage patterns. So, 
it seems kind of like a, a weird sideshow. Yeah, obviously a very small number of Twitter users are verified. Now, if they do open up verification and say verification now means you're a real person rather than that you're a notable person, um, or maybe there's like a two-tier system, there's like a gray check mark for you're a real person and then a blue for you're a notable person. I, I think there's just no way that they're going to get rid of the blue check marks being a separate and special group of people. That just seems like kind of intrinsic to how society is organized, right? Every single social media platform, even Discord has this concept of like the blue verified check mark that like, yeah, you're like a special notable person. Um, it's on Facebook. It's on pretty much every single social media platform has this concept. So I'd be very surprised if Twitter get rid of it, gets rid of it, but they may add another thing, which is you are a real person and everybody is going to be filtering your ability to engage with Twitter based on whether or not you can pass this real person test, which is basically just civil resistance, right? It's just like pay eight bucks a month. So it's almost like you're asking, do you think paying eight bucks a month is like a good civil resistance mechanism? I'm like, yeah, probably. Because like, there's no way that the, the average bot is making more than $8 a month. Bot IRR. <laughs> it's pretty low. That's why it's so, that's why it's so like, you know, it's because it's so cheap to spin up a bot on Twitter. That's why all these things, that's why they're, they're there. You know, when I was at uh, Airbnb. I had this friend who actually worked at Spotify and then left Spotify to make a bot farm, like one of the, the phone oh. farming farms, like the. Oh, wow. Uh, and they, they 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 said the highest highest uh, highest return is Spotify for sure because musicians will like pay way more to get moved up the ranks because like they have direct economic oh. ties to it like uh, record labels will sign you based on like those metrics so like it's literally worth money to them so oh yeah that makes sense so I was uh, when I was at Airbnb I used to work on payments fraud and so we we had a, a pretty deep view into the economics of. You know, basically what it costs to spin up a fake spin up a fake account. Usually it involves like some kind of supply chain. If you go on the dark net, you buy uh, you know, a compromised Gmail, whether it's like a Gmail or a Yahoo or whatever. Um, you use that compromised Gmail that has some reputation to like create an account at Airbnb. You you buy a you know a, a fake uh, passport. That's like the most expensive part of that supply chain if you actually have to KYC. And that's why KYC is often the gold standard, is that it's just the most expensive to fake. Uh, yeah, for for the most part, like it gets you into the several dollars. And unless you're on a very high value marketplace like Airbnb, Airbnb is very, very high dollar value if you can scam someone on Airbnb because these transactions are, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars. But doing it on a much smaller scale, a much smaller platform, just doesn't, the unit economics just don't work. So I, I'd imagine during the, during the heyday of crypto, it would have been worth it because a single mark can net you so much money if somebody falls for your scam. But today, with many fewer eyeballs on crypto and people just being more, um, just being less crazy and less kind of maniacal about what's going on in the space. My guess is that conversions and ROI are super down for, for even scammers across the industry. Actually, one, I guess this brings back one other question. Amongst the current crypto native, uh, actually, I saw this in the YouTube questions, which is why I wanted to bring this up, which is like amongst, you know, Lens and Farcaster, kind of where do you, how do you feel about the like native crypto social networks? I think we've actually never talked about them on the show. All right, I remember correctly. Like, where, 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 what are your opinions on them? Because I, I, you know, I, I feel like I don't have a fully formed opinion other than I, I've definitely heard a lot of people saying that like Farcaster is like the VC, is a VC Twitter just migrated and Lens is like the DGENs migrated. But like that's like the highest level thing. And I, I've used Lens. I've never used Farcaster. So I don't, don't have much strong in terms of strong opinion. I, I feel like that's right. I don't know. Does it, is anybody active on either Farcaster or Lens? I check out Farcaster sometimes, maybe once or twice a week. 
you go on twice a week. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I feel like, um, with, with these, with, with these crypto social media plays, I feel like they're mostly, there, there's a great piece by Eugene Wei called status as a service. It's like the, the quintessential piece on understanding how new social media platforms come into existence and like how they compete with each other. Um, and I think the, the primary thing that matters when it comes to giving life to a new social media platform is understanding what is the status game that's being played on this new platform and what is the crew or the community or the vibe or the, um, the, you know, just the group that I'm going to be joining if I join this platform. And so I think it, it's much less about the technology. It's much more about the community and the people and the, and the kind of status that you're afforded by getting onto this new platform. And so I think, Tarun, you're absolutely right. One's for DJs, one's for VCs. Um, if they can make that work, maybe that's a good way to seed a new community. Uh, but, I, but I think it's tough, right? Most social media plays fail just, you know, kind of on the, just from the beginning. Yeah, Farcaster reminds me a lot of early Reddit, like kind of 2002, 2007, 2008, when it was like seeded by all the YC people. And so similar kind of thing, like people uh, mine what is already happening on a social network. And so that's kind of the vibe or the culture that's like been seeded on, on Farcaster. Yeah, I don't know that people are fundamentally driven by, I like this thing because it's decentralized. You know, I think like maybe for Mastodon, I think Mastodon is actually a good example of people who are really ideological and are using something because it's decentralized or because it's federated or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. I think the vast majority of users don't make decisions that way. They make decisions based on a value proposition. And for social media, the value proposition is social. So it's like, who's there? What's the content that's there? That's what's going to make people make these decisions. Um, but I can imagine that starting from the place of we are going to be this, you know, maximally decentralized place attracts the right people, attracts the right crowd, builds you the right culture. I think that's possible, but, um, you know, you, you have to, you have to prove it. Here's my extremely naive and extremely macro perspective on this. So if you look at like what tech companies have been in the business of doing over the last like 10 years, like in general, it's been a massive struggle to build enough server farms to even like host and keep up with their platforms because they have in some cases actually a billion users um, which is incomprehensibly a large amount of usage google and facebook and twitter like everyone who's like been in this market has just been investing so hard in just keeping a platform like up and you know when i look at centralized versus decentralized just like data and compute and hosting, it's like, yes, all of these platforms are amazing when you have 10,000 users. Like you literally can run anything on a blockchain with 10,000 users. You really can't run anything in a decentralized or distributed way when there's a billion users, unless you make like radical changes <laughs> and compromises. And so, you know, I, I, I think all of these, you know, alternatives look amazing when you're counting users in the tens of thousands. I don't necessarily expect they'll you know, function, you know, when there's a hundred million or a billion, I don't know if a hundred million or a billion people want to use something just because it's decentralized, but like the hardest problem is building something that a hundred million or a billion people want to use. And that's unbelievably hard. And once you do that, it's just an unbelievably complicated and difficult tech problem of being able to serve them without going down instantly. I, I mean, I will say one thing I think that's interesting about the lens version of the world is like it sort of implicitly assumes that there's going to be hundreds of roll-ups and each community is going to like run on its own roll-up and like you and it's sort of in my mind like if 
the multi-chain thesis and like people are willing to have their own coin for validation works. Like you, I could see that being a better version of um, sort of blue sky or Macedon. Yeah. Like, like I, I can kind of see that the incentivized version of those for many small communities could work versus like the one big melting pot type of thing. And I, and I, I like the, it's cool to see the, the experiments with that. I mean, that's basically the difference between Reddit and Twitter, right? Like, Twitter is a giant public forum. Reddit is like a bunch of little communities. It, it feels like, I mean, I am not, I, I haven't spent that much time thinking about these things, but it does seem like those are two almost different categories of social media. And I don't think you're going to end up in a similar place where like the kinds of conversations that happen on Reddit are very different than the kind of conversations that happen on Twitter. And sometimes people complain about that. They're like, oh, the idea that like anybody can kind of jump up and reply guy you when you're on Twitter. And on Reddit, like, you're in these very specialized forums. Oftentimes, there are very different rules, very different etiquette. People often try, try to create those sub-communities within Twitter and say, okay, well, this is like, this is the part of Twitter where we talk this way and we do this kind of thing. But you kind of always know that like, you're not in an enclosed space. You are talking in public. And um, that it feels like one of the different categories of how social media and how these sort of digital spaces effectively are going to be hoarded off and how we're going to think about the rules around them. Like if you look at the way that people, the way that people use the decentralized social media stuff today, the interesting thing about it is that it's mostly starting. Almost all of these communities are starting with very high value users, right? So they're very wealthy. They're usually accomplished. They have a lot of free time. These are not like the 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 person who's joining Twitter today is very likely a very low value user. The really you know kind of wealthy, knowledgeable, connected, elite people they're already on Twitter. They're already on social media, and so in some sense. I kind of feel like a little bit of what's happening with these decentralized social media plays is they're trying to attract a very, very wealthy, high LTV community. And if you can do that, then it's Long term value for, for users who are... Or lifetime value. Lifetime value. Um, <laughs> it's plausible that um, if you have like really, really valuable users, because they're all like kind of the crypto intelligentsia or the crypto super wealthy, and they hang out in one particular place, that their eyeballs will be way more valuable than other eyeballs, right? But fundamentally, that's how social media platforms monetize. They monetize on eyeballs and they advertise stuff to you, right? So you could imagine that maybe that's a story of how even if these social media platforms that are decentralized don't become world scale, they don't get hundreds of millions or even billions of users, um, but they're just a place where everyone there is super valuable to advertise to. Um, that's one story of how they can become valuable. Another story is that they monetize in a totally different way. So, you know, obviously people have talked for a long, long, long time about the idea that you have to pay to tweet, you have to pay to retweet, you have to, you know, people get paid for curating, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm skeptical of those stories. I think like free is just so good. It's just hard to, it's just, it's just so charismatically obvious that that's what people want. They just want, they don't want to think about paying money to interact with a, with a social media platform. But I think that's the, to, to my mind, that's the bull case is that you build a really engaged, really valuable community. And that community, even though there are many fewer people than you have for broader social media, they're worth a lot more. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. You know, my, my dumb heuristic is until I see a, a 10 million view TikTok video about someone being excited to pay for clicking, uh, I'm not going to really say that. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it somehow has to become like its own meme. And like, there's no way paying from going from free to that will do that. But this, this idea of like somewhere in the middle of Reddit and Twitter finding like a hybridization, crypto might actually be good for that. 
it, it, it sort of is, it, it does send, lend some properties of both sides of that public agora versus the like very, you know, hierarchical structured niche convo. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on. We have a, another interesting topic that took place in the last week. So SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX, um, he released a bunch of statements about this proposed regulation called DCCPA. Um, I have no idea what it stands for, but it doesn't matter. The, basically, digital currency uh, regulation that is still, we don't have a finalized bill yet, but the bill basically is going to, one, put the CFTC in charge of regulating the crypto spot markets, as well as a bunch of other stuff that may potentially touch DeFi or other elements of crypto. It's a little bit unclear right now what's going to actually end up being in the final bill. And so he posted a, a bunch of tweet storms about his views on how uh, crypto regulation and crypto policy should evolve. And there ended up being a lot of backlash against SBF's views here. It seems like all of a sudden, SBF has turned from the hero to the villain of the crypto community. Now, a lot of people are very suspicious of his views on any of this stuff. Jeroen, sounds like you want to say something. When has an exchange CEO not have had a fall from grace in crypto? I, I can't. I think that's literally every single one. Not a fall from grace yet. That's a, that's a stronger term, I think, than what he has. I think it's more of like a you know a reveal that yes, Sam Bankman-Fried has his own interests that are not just. But okay, not fine. But, but every every exchange CEO has had that, as far as I can tell, including yes. Hayden. If, if you count Hayden as one, even Hayden has had that. I feel like shift. Hayden hasn't. I mean, a little bit. I, f- I feel like the, the post-sushi thing kind of like changed the, changed the had a little bit of this. Like. <laughs> I, 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 I think people still love Hayden. I don't think there's that. I, I, think, I think Sam, I think uh, Brian Armstrong and CZ, each of them have, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a shadow to them now that I think people, people understand and appreciate that once upon a time they didn't. You know, I, I correct my statement. I said every exchange CEO. Star has never had that happen. Star was always, you know, Star. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Well, okay. So he so he posted this stuff, got a lot of backlash, and there was a fantastic debate between him and Eric Voorhees, who was the founder of Shapeshift. So Eric Voorhees, longtime kind of Bitcoin uh, influencer, thought leader type person, is founder of Shapeshift, which back in the day was one of the biggest decentralized exchanges. Back you know before that was a really uh, totally coherent DeFi thing. Um, so Eric Voorhees published a, a long piece in rebuttal to uh, Sam's. Uh, proposal for crypto regulation. And they ended up doing a debate on Bankless, which I thought was fantastic. If you haven't seen it, it's like two hours long, but it's really a fascinating debate. And I think it goes into a lot of the core questions behind how crypto ought to be regulated and kind of, kind of in a sense, goes to the heart of what we're even doing in this industry. Um, what did you guys think about this argument between Sam Bankman-Fried and, uh, and Eric Voorhees? I mean, before we get into the material of the debate, I do want to say, I feel like Sam, I like Sam, but probably like an image consultant. I think he lost pretty much just purely on the aesthetics of the debate. It's like Sam in like the FTX call center, like, you know, bouncing his leg up and down and like you know, kind of <laughs> tweaking out and speaking like a thousand words per minute. And then Eric is in this like giant mansion in Denver and he like speaks extremely calmy and he has this like glow around him. And I'm like, even if you didn't know what they were saying, you know, there, there's definitely a, a, a bias here, but I think, um, yeah, there's there's one sort of very poignant point which sort of got circulated around Twitter, which is sort of a rehash of this argument that's gets discussed a lot around the difference between like Gmail and SMTP. 
where you know you can have a protocol and you can have a client and the two can interface and the client can make certain you know, implementation decisions and uh, but everybody can still you know subscribe to the, this protocol and basically you know Eric sort of rolled this out in in front of Sam and asking him like you know why do you think we should treat um, DeFi differently than, than we treat email and there was not really a good answer and I think that was kind of the moment when the when the debate tipped and so yeah o- overall I think like. You, you know, I think if you actually read the proposal, it's it's not that unreasonable. I think the main sort of point that people take issue with is the need for regulated front ends, but still allowing the protocols themselves to be unregulated. But certainly, you know, I, I think, again, just uh, a lot of it is sort of narr- narrative and aesthetics based, um, which is sometimes unfortunate. So just to, just to summarize briefly, actually, Tom, can you pull up the image from that video? Because I think it illustrates exactly what you're talking about. But the crux of the disagreements, so there's was, there was a few kind of minutiae, but they got stuck on one particular question, which was, should front ends be allowed to be regulated? And Sam's view was that, look, it's not great if front ends are regulated, like front ends for DeFi protocols, um, like you know the website, the URL, the domain name, whatever. Um, it's not great for front ends to be regulated, but if you're going to give up something, give up that rather than give up everything else. So he's kind of like, look, chop, up, chop off the hand to save the body. And Eric's view is like, look, why would we chop anything off? We don't even know that we need to chop anything off. Like we have to fight for the whole body. And why are you giving up so quickly? It seems like you have some ulterior motive if you're giving up this quickly. That was kind of the thrust of the disagreement between between the two. Um, it's it's definitely the case. Oh, okay, this is great. We got Sam and then uh, we got Eric. And you have to kind of watch the debate, I think, to sort of uh, get a full feel for it. But <laughs> it was great. I think they both made made great points. But Eric has such blue eyes. It's amazing. It, it was, it was yes. kind, of, uh, kind of terrifying how, how gorgeous of a man he is. Um, Tarun, you, you saw the debate as well. What were your thoughts? I didn't see the debate. Oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. No. <laughs> I have other things to do. I'm not just a, a, an investor. I have, I have a company around. <laughs> I don't have time to listen to podcasts. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm sorry. Well, here, here, here's, here's what I say. Papers don't say. write themselves, you know? I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Here, here's what I'd say, having, having, uh, having listened to the debate. And, and um, I think... The problem, Tom, you said the problem is one of really messaging. And I think in, in many ways it's true. During DeFi summer, Sam, um, Sam really came to prominence for his like kind of just his extreme and extremely rigorous thinking and clarity. And uh, when you're analyzing like liquidity mining and you're trading stuff and like that's what the name of the game and you're talking about Solana and Serum and all these different things. It's like, oh, that's amazing. You're like a metallic like person. And he made people rich. And he made, he made people don't, love Don't it. forget people the, were the very happy. I of think course, that's of course, of course. the important halo effect. Yes, 100%. 100%. I think it, it, it's very similar to Andre in many ways. Like, I think he sort of had an Andre-like cult of personality around one, making people money. But then also a similar fall from grace. Similar fall from grace. Because, um, or not, again, fall from grace too strong. I would say, you know, just kind of um, losing that halo around him. And I think part of it was because that same analytical rigor, when it comes to a, a moment when it demands that like that Bitcoiner, like political, religious grandstanding, right? Like you kind of have to stand up, take a stand and give a sermon. Uh, I think that's where Sam is not at the strongest. And you heard the debate, like Sam was kind of like, like, wait, hold on, define your terms. What do you mean by this? Okay, is this like a one out of, t- out of a 10? Is this like a seven for you? Is this a nine? Um, he, he was all, he was really trying to like get this like step by step breakdown of everything that Eric was trying to debate. And Eric 
in, on the other hand, was making this very impassioned claim that, look, what is the point of all the stuff that we're doing? You know, he's kind of flailing around. He's kind of making this big, beautiful, you know, in a church speech. Or something exactly, that looks exactly. Like a church. Something that looks like a church, exactly. About what he believes and why he's in this industry. Like he's a true believer, you know. And uh, I think that that really came across in that in that debate. And I think this is one of the places where I think Sam, from the perspective of a regulator, is extremely reasonable. And like he is somebody who a regulator can work with. Um, but he's not somebody who the people of like the sort of crypto Twitter just you know uh, uh, drawn broadly feels like they represent them as a religious leader. Yeah. And that's where Sam, I think now the breakdown is happening. Sam has like less wrong brain. You know, he's like, I'm a rationalist and everyone else is a rationalist. And, you know, unfortunately, I think for most people, it's just actually not a very compelling argument, unless, of course, you know, you also are. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, maybe I'll take his side somewhat in one way, which is like, I think if you're an exchange CEO, you always kind of have to be duplicitously on both sides. There's just not any way to actually be a true believer in anything. Because you're running a venue whose entire goal is to make no sort of like long-term belief in any one asset you're trading. You're just trying to believe in like the net volume growing. And so like that's inevitably like your utility function. If you're a utilitarian, you know, your your utility function is much more correlated to that. Whether it's a DeFi exchange, whether it's a centralized exchange. And I think the problem is the narratives that exist in, in Twitter and especially I think in, in DeFi and NFT land are much more emotionally charged in some ways, or at least like evocative and less about like utilitarianism of, of any form, whether philosophically or whether it's just like, Hey, I'm an expected utility maximum. And somehow I think, you know, every exchange CEO has to go through the, it, it's just like not possible for them to forever ride the wave up. And I think it's all, it's inevitably also correlated with market going down and like, you know, people are now like, kind of like, oh, like looking for someone to blame for, for things. And if it's someone who got you rich and then maybe perhaps if you're joined later, made you poor or whatever, in your, in your eyes as an emotional trader as opposed to a rational one. It's very easy to see the, see the, see, see how that, that can happen. But I just don't think it's possible to, 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 run an entity like an exchange and somehow ever have any real philosophical belief in anything. <laughs> I, I think that seems too strong. That seems too strong. Yeah. I think like Brian Armstrong and like Jesse Powell seem pretty passionate about like, you know, they're sort of like a, was it like Rob Lowe in the NFL hat? They're just like, they love crypto, you know, and a lot more as they stepped away. CZ, CZ is a true believer. CZ is absolutely a true believer. Like, I, I think it's possible to do both. I think Sam is relatively unique in his kind of compartmentalization. Um, but I think most exchange CEOs, I, I don't think that's true. I think most CEOs are, are true believers. Like, you kind of have to be to stick it through that brutal of bear markets. Um, I mean, for Binance, it's not as true. I think for like, okay, for Huobi, for, you know, BitMEX, for, sure. for the folks who've been around for Kraken, right? For Even for Coinbase. Like, you had to stick it through some really freaking brutal times when nobody cared what you were doing. You still sort of are not like, I think if you started 2017 or later, it's probably quite different than the exchanges before. And like, that's why you made this exception for Binance, right? Like when you said it, it's, it, right. it's, it's, it's a lot less philosophical and there's a lot less like provenance of like, when you ask people why they are interested or got into space, they don't have a like great cypherpunk awakening or like, a like, <laughs> oh, like this particular hashing algorithm, I'm the inventor of it. 
Like, you know, there, there's none of that type of stuff. And so like, because of that, I, th I think like if you're new, especially if you joined during the 2021 cycle, you know, I, I think like you, you, you also didn't do any provenance look, you know, research behind. And, and so inevitably you get these time-based conflicts. It's, it's like, it's like uh, speed running, you know, uh, Gen Z hating millennials. <laughs> It's true. FTX has also kind of been up only since they started, right? Like it was, uh, what was it, 2018, 2019 when they started? So they've kind of just burst on the scene and it's been kind of perennial bull market for them since uh, they've been here. So maybe, maybe that's also part of it. Did, did you all see the um, story today where their balance sheet was released to Coindesk? Yes. Alameda. Uh, Alameda. Alameda, yeah. 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 So the, the high-level summary, I believe they had, what was it, like something like uh Four billion in equity or six billion in equity, and they, a lot of it was FTT. They had a lot of FTT on the balance sheet that they used to to borrow against. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It it did feel a little bit incomplete, in the sense that like we, there's just not enough to really understand what is going on there without understanding like what did their loan agreements look like, uh, you know, what's the relationship between Alameda and FTX, you know, how much of, like is Sam backstopping personally some of the some of the loans that they have. So it's, it's hard to tell really what's going on there. Also, this is June. So probably a lot's changed between June and, and, and today as well. Uh, but you have to imagine all these numbers are probably a lot bigger at the end of the year. So, but again, hard to know. I mean, also, I mean, obviously they have to have a ton of FTT. A, if, if, if they sold any FTT, everyone is dumping immediately. There's just no, there's no doubt about that. They're the biggest market maker that uses FTT as collateral. So first of all, there's that. Secondly, they couldn't sell all of that without taking 99% haircuts on everything. So I would just, just throw away the FTT part because it's all about rebates on their own exchange, right? Like, I mean, you have to stake FTT. Uh, so I, I would kind of ignore the FTT part and like focus on the other part. The $2 billion equity book was interesting because I was like, that's a lot of private deals to have done. Uh, I, I, I don't know. That seemed a lot larger to me than... <laughs> It could be F it could be FTX equity though. You don't know. That's true, but that would be bad for their disaffiliation story to get past the CFTC and to get all these trust licenses, right? Could be void. They have a major. They have a major shareholder who is you know, the main market maker. Yeah, I mean, look. I, the reality is that like this leak was so vague that we don't really know anything. They also they they, they said in the leak that, that CoinDesk reviewed these this piece, but they also didn't know whether this was the only entity that Alameda owns, right? So like very often there are multiple entities involved in these things. So we might just be seeing one part of the balance sheet. So the reality is like, look, unless you go do due diligence on Alameda, you really don't know what the complete picture looks like. Yeah, and also FTT is a, a weird rehypothecate asset for getting fee rebates and stuff, right? So you should, you should really be- Yeah, yeah no, I don't think you know. need, I don't think you need like a billion dollars of FTT to get fee rebates, right? Like clearly that, that's just like, they have that for collateral. I mean, if you are the number one market maker and you want 90 Nine percent of rebates because the rebates are distributed by FTT staking, and you made the coin. Wait, but like, doesn't Sam own Alameda? So like, Sam is paying himself. Yeah. Rebate, like, what? Why, who cares? Why? Well, I mean, why would it? Why would it matter? He's taking revenue from FTX and distributing it to Alameda shareholders. I mean, it seems fine. He has other shareholders, FTX. Sure. Okay. Fine. Yes, but it's just like it's very. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I, I. I mean, I'm just pointing out that it's not that unlikely. You know, if you're like truly. Utility I think Steve's point was you don't need a billion dollars of FTT to get like the max rebate. Yeah, maybe. But you do need a billion dollars to defend the FTT price because you 
Yeah, think for real. We're trying to get SPF back on the show at least once or twice. So hey, I def- I defended him in this Eric Voorhees thing. I, I think it's it's okay. just the nature of being a Shane video. You can't all right, all right, all right. Robert, what's your what's your view on the the Sam kind of you know dark side coming out? I, I think it's pretty clear that his interests are in making money in what he calls effective altruism. Um, his motives are not the benefit of an industry or the decentralization of an industry or to see any individual project succeed, whether it's the smallest startup or Bitcoin. I don't think that matters to him. I think what he cares about is operating successful exchange and trading business. Fair enough. Well, um, so I'm, I, I, I've actually, I knew Sam before he got into crypto because I, I've also been a long time effective altruist and I, I first met him in 2015, I think it was 2015 back when he was still working at Jane street because it, it was a, you know, a pretty small community at that time. The one thing I will say about Sam is that Sam is, um, he's, he's a very, very honest person. And so I think he's now, he's now in a tough position because he has a lot of, he has a lot of stakeholders that he has to be responsive to. Some of them are, you know, people who own equity in FTX. Some of them are, you know, users of his platform. Some of them are just people in crypto, right? Like, remember last year, he came in to try to save Sushi and, you know, kind of took it over from Chef Nomi. He was doing all the stuff. You could tell that it was very much for him a feeling of obligation to just like be kind of a good guy and do the right thing. Now those, it, clearly the, the things that are pulling at him are much more complicated and coming from many more angles than they were at any time in the past. Um, and so I, I feel for him. But at the same time, like it's very clear that uh, he can't keep that halo for too much longer if he wants to have real power in this industry. Pretty much nobody gets to keep that halo if you uh, stick around long enough. So unless you want to be just like a pure freedom fighter and not make any real money. I would not say Eric Voorhees is poor, though. Do you think Eric Voorhees has a halo? The Satoshi dice didn't roll themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That is a fantastic line, Tarun. I gotta, I gotta give you credit for that. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta make that the uh, the subtitle for the show. <laughs> okay. Last thing. So, last thing that happened this week is that we saw um, this this interesting phenomenon of these Reddit NFTs blowing up. The volume has kind of died down a bit. Now it's being replaced by the um, sorry, art gobblers. Art gobblers. You can tell. You can tell. I'm very cool. They gobble goo. So it's, you know. That's right. That's right. So they are anyway. the most NSF. NSFW high value NFT that exists. Yes, it is true. But so the Reddit NFTs were very interesting because of just how broad based it was, right? So like the the art gobblers, very kind of crypto native, very kind of insider thing. The thing that was fascinating about the Reddit NFTs is they had millions of people who were grabbing hold of this stuff. Now they were not trading it on chain. They were not actually swapping this stuff. But uh, yeah, Tom, can, can you walk us through like what exactly was the pro- like how did Reddit introduce these NFTs? Yeah. And uh, what happened with the trading volume? So these have been around for a while. Um, so they, they launched this summer. But the initial version of it was kind of more like an art NFT platform, like a foundation where it's like you can go and mint it and it's all on Polygon and you go pay, pay the artist for you know, some NFTs. And like, they weren't that popular, but they launched this second version, which is very abstracted out. So when you go and mint it, it doesn't call it an NFT. It doesn't call it a wallet. It calls it you know a collectible and you create a vault. And so it's like, and you kind of see that actually in the usage numbers where, yeah, the, the user numbers look very impressive and it's almost 3 million people who own these, but very few people have actually traded them. And so uh, you're looking at like a few hundred people who have actually you know, traded them. And so you kind of get the sense it's, you know, there's this idea of like, 
sort of like the DeFi mullet, where it's like the front end is you know all dollars and the back end is plugging the DeFi. This is like the NFT mullet. It's like it's you know Reddit on the front end, and you don't know that their NFTs on the back end. Whether that's effective product strategy or not is kind of TBD. But interesting to see like th- this time around, they've actually gotten um, a good chunk of activity. So do they do they actually call them NFTs or do they just call them collectibles? They're just called collectibles. I think in the documentation you can see that they're NFTs. And they right, it. but in the actual product experience. Yeah. I, I mean, the best part was reading some of the posts of people being like, these things are much better to trade than NFTs. They don't have the baggage. <laughs> like, I love being able to sell things. And it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> Look, <I was> like, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of like convoluted like circular <laughs> reasoning. Yeah, some some of the comments that were on Twitter and Reddit, especially, were incredible where people were just like, you know, NFT bashing and saying like, NFTs have absolutely no utility whatsoever. Thank God for the digital collectibles. They have so much. (laughs) And like, unironically, I mean, just like people couldn't separate, you know, the fact that, you know, their digital collectibles were NFTs. I mean, in a way, what it's telling us is that like, we kind of messed up the nft branding right like the concept behind nfts and digital collectible like yeah totally perfect product market fit but the word kind of has some stank on it now and so i feel like a16z needs to come in and rebrand nft the way they rebranded crypto to web3 like we need a new we need a new word yeah yeah, yeah. web4 digital web four, oh, that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, was it, we, we, did we do Web 5? We got to go to Web no, 6 no, no, now. No, no, we already, we Jack, skipped Web 4. Jack jumped to Web 5, but we skipped. Yeah, yeah so we got to, we got to, yeah, we got, it's like Windows 10, right? Like you skip, oh, you skip 9. Take up the, mid, the middle one. Why, why? No, skip? no, no. No, no, you can't, you get, no, you get the middle one because then that means that Windows, that there's no Windows. It means that Web 5 is better than you already. Hey, look, Windows went backwards. It went from Windows uh, 2000 to XP <laughs> and then to 7. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's a big drop. Yeah. Yeah. That's that 2000 down to seven is really bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was, it was 98 and then 2000 and then down to seven. So you're like dropping two layers. That, that, that is true. Three one was um, the best though. Windows three one. I mean, I love that one. Yeah. Only, uh, only, only certain people remember this. Oh, yeah. Well, interesting. Have you guys been uh, doing the art gobbler stuff? No, I, I haven't. I made a vow to myself at some point a couple months ago that I would no longer purchase NFTs. And so I am... Wait, what? What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Robert, you got to explain this. this. It was public. We talked about it on the show, I think. Yeah, we talked about it on the show, I think. Did we talk about the show? I, we mentioned I it. it you guys me. gave me like some flack for it. Oh, yeah. You were like, hey, what a wimp. Why wouldn't you buy NFTs anymore? <laughs> well, I'm glad that... I, I don't remember this, but I'm glad that my past self did what I wanted to do just now. So um, I feel vindicated. Yeah. Okay. How, how does it feel? How does it feel being sober on on NFTs? NFT sobriety. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, it's like drinking water at a party, right? Like everyone else is like you know, having like a wild time. Like it's you can have a great time just drinking water, watching, you know, and having conversations and all that. But I'm not a participant in this one. So I wow. just find the concept gross, and I would feel embarrassed if I ever w- was involved in purchasing one in any way, shape, or form. It's just like the grossest story, and I just like look at those NFTs. I'm quite repulsed. Same here. It's some sort of uh, furry thing, right? That's my it's, understanding. It's, it's, it's paradigm plus the guy who made that show, uh, Rick and Morty. Rick and, yeah. Rick and Morty. Yeah, but like it's like it's like a little too gross for my taste. Like I kind of like yeah, sure, maybe like 
the five people who watch Adult Swim and also use crypto Twitter are going <laughs> to love this shit. And that's just the five of them. On that. But I like, think there's actually a pretty large overlap between like kind of, you know, Peter Pan stoners and people who buy a lot of crypto. The inter- interesting thing about the, the uh, it, it was a, one of those free to, free to earn launches. Um, and basically, you know, obviously all that does is just make the MEV auction take all the initial revenue instead of the creator, but whatever. Uh, you could see the MEV auction, actually. The, the One of the first ones, someone paid more than the first resale that they did. So. <laughs> like, it had started with the started with the nil. But I think the interesting thing about this uh, kind of start of this thing, I mean, I think the cool part is they have like this two token thing. It's sort of like, it's almost like uh, an own bond in some way, except instead of a bond, you have this like NFT then you own enough of the nfts you can like mint the erc20 this goo and uh you keep you kind of have a cycle of like use the liquid asset use the liquid asset and that part is kind of interesting but it's it's just like the mechanics of this thing and the way the like if you looked at the actual like number of users and number of unique wallets there was just like it was not this was it was a very like pretty non-organic launch let's say what was the total number of users like ballpark? I, I I hadn't looked today, but I think I looked sometime yesterday. It was like almost three k. Yeah, but it was it was, it was pretty pretty non organic. You could see like if you drew if you like drew the address cycles, there's a lot of wash because people oh. because of the way this the the mechanism works to like move between the like illiquid like own the NFT is oh, goo, oh, own the goo, stake it, and you get more NFT like. That stuff basically seems to be dominated by like you know I don't know. 10 to 15 people if i already guessed that makes sense it, it feels a little bit like mechanically kind of similar to dark forest in that like it kind of nerd sniped uh, a bunch of people who are like both smart and into nfts and for everybody else they're just like kind of excited about the the price movement i, I think if they did this last year it would have been a huge hit it would have been like could have memed like um but this year to be clear, it is a huge hit i mean it is like number one on OpenSea. i think it was at least yesterday Compare the number one on OpenSea now to number one on OpenSea six months ago. I mean, True. my point is like it's on. It, it could have it could have had a. It was like a little late for the the cycle. Right. right. And it's also just doesn't have mass appeal. Like the thing about board apes and CryptoPunks <laughs> is like they don't offend that many people. At the end of the day, like they're they're not like really that offensive. I feel like a lot of people would find art gobblers offensive. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but it does it does definitely fit well into the crypto sensibility because um, I think crypto crypto does kind of embrace a lot of offensiveness kind of at its core. So I I feel like it's not too far off the mark there. But anyway, uh, I think we're I think we're up on time. Uh, so we'll 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 be back at you uh, in a week or two. So until then, thank you everybody. Signing off. <laughs>